You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome to another episode of Marketing News Canada. Today, I am very happy to be joined by Chris Stone. He is husband, father, musician, and an 18-year product design and strategy veteran with a foundation in organizational design, design leadership, and digital product design. Chris has led or has been the primary leader for over 100 products and with those products reaching a massive audience of over 400 million people. Chris, welcome. Our audience and I are very happy to get to know you and and understand a little bit more about what you do. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Daryl. Absolutely. So just to set the stage for our audience and myself here, what is it that you do and what is your origin story of how you got to being the leader that you are today? Okay, we'll do a we'll do a, a quick version of it. Or slow. Yeah, uh, currently <laughs> I am the senior director of product and design at Envision, which is a software platform company. But I focus inside a group called Design Transformation, where we focus on hmm. helping our customers better explore and understand their practices on cross-functional teams. So my work is really focused on helping customers identify and assess the behaviors that they engage in to run their business and how cross-functional teams work together to the advancement and the advantage and the value proposition of the business on behalf of the customers that they deliver to. In that regard, I run two separate teams as the product management design and research lead for a design maturity assessment product, which helps these cross-functional teams benchmark and assess their organizations team by team to figure out what teams are doing and what what teams are doing and how they're leveraging certain practices in order to deliver results and have a healthier team environment and then compare those across an organization to see where there's opportunities for charity growth and also how organizational cross training could be leveraged where one team is excelling in the practices related to user research and other mm-hmm. teams are are behind the curve on that really being able to assess is that a resourcing problem is that an education problem is that what are the challenges and the constraints leading to that? And can we leverage the knowledge internally to teach other aspects of the other teams in the organization without having to leverage an external consultant? So you're mm-hmm. building like organizational resiliency and career path development by actually looking internally instead of always looking externally, though there can be a happy blend of those. And that's all built upon the research that Envision did in 2018, which was called the New Design Frontier, which was a, a giant project a research study actually looking at what high-performance cross-functional teams look like that are delivering digital products and services and that net impact on business. Out from that came this new Design Frontier report and five levels of design maturity that we've built this product around to help our customers and help anyone that takes the survey and is benchmarked to help them take more, more direct action on the things that matter most to their teams based on a ground level approach. So the members of the teams are actually telling them where they're struggling, what things matter most to them. So that you're getting a boots on the ground view versus what can happen in many organizations where you have a Mm. leadership level view of what they think they're seeing, which is what the people doing the work are actually experiencing. That, my friend, is a very interesting conversation when that intersection arises and there's there's a disconnect. Yeah. 
I see it all the time. I see that all the time. Like that is something that within my own company, that's something I, I find is often overlooked is, is from both sides, from the from the leadership side and then from the, the guys boots in the ground in the trenches getting the work done. I would love to understand and have our audience understand how did you, currently you're at Envision, you're going to have many more exciting opportunities in the future. How did you get from young Chris to veteran, 18-year veteran. What does that, in a nutshell or, or a shortlisted format, how did you get, you know, where was year one of that year 18 and how yeah. did you get to where you are today? Love sure. to hear your background. And I realized I didn't answer the second product that I'm responsible for. I'll cover that very quickly. Okay. So I'm responsible for Envision Learn, which has been a learning product that we've created to meet those design maturity dimensions in the areas of practice to help customers expedite like their maturity growth. So if in this case, experimentation or user research or how to um, run a design operations practice, if there's curiosity and, and an opportunity there, we actually have written, created and curated bespoke content that maps into that. So someone can go at a team level as leaders can actually move their teams into that learning product that specifically mm. maps to the maturity area that was surfaced in the maturity assessment. So there's a straight line to reconciling those opportunities that arise. So we've been working on connecting those two products. And so I'm, re- I'm responsible for kind of the, the design and product strategy and research and a lot of the training that goes into connecting the dots on those and how it connects to Envision's core product suite in a very purposeful, meaningful, and high-value way. Got it. So to answer your next question... Young Chris... I started off in sales. So okay. like I have a degree in organizational studies and sociology and a background in finance. So I guess that naturally made me attractive to be an inside sales rep when I <laughs> left school. Um, or that's just where you start to get experience, right? And yeah. meet people and learn how to talk to others and work on teams and meet people outside of companies. And so I traversed that, Spent my first three, four years in a sales capacity, inside sales, business development, and other roles on ver- in various companies in the Bay Area, and kind of cut my teeth just learning how to run businesses and how to support them and how to understand nice. like what it means to actually operate a business and to understand the inside versus the outside roles and all the supply chain areas related to delivering actually hardware products in this case. Mm-hmm. And I had a passion for design that I'd become a self-taught designer through my passion for live music. I started teaching myself Photoshop and started, I went to school at UC Davis. So I was really close to San Francisco at that point in time and started seeing live music and bringing my camera. And friends of mine were recording shows. And so I started taking pictures at shows and they were recording them. And then they would provide the recordings. In this case, it was cassettes at that point in time and then moved to CDs Mm -hmm. quickly. But I was making cassette and CD covers based on the photos and putting That's set lists awesome. on them and circulating them around North America, like making them available to people because it was something you could do and there was nothing wrong with that. The bands were all into it because it gave them greater exposure by building an audience kind of through the passion for their music. Started doing show posters and whatnot. So I just kind of taught myself design. And in my process of navigating sales jobs, I was introduced at a software company. Um, to So a friend through music introduced us at a show where someone, a friend of mine, or a, a yet-to-be friend of mine, had just <laughs> received founder funding for this company based in San Francisco. And oh. the third person, the person that knew both of us was like, hey, this guy's been selling these products and been involved with customers that meet the needs of the software that you are 
proposing to make available mm-hmm. in the world. And there's very few people that actually know what this is at this point in time. And it was an IP telephony solution. So it was leveraging the internet to connect phones so that people could take a phone and plug it in anywhere in the world and it would ring no matter what their location was. So Cisco had pushed like in a very disruptive way into that marketplace. And that was one of the things I was involved with selling amongst many other things. And so we had a chat and he was looking for product marketing support. Wow. So I had the opportunity because they knew I was a designer. I was making show posters. They had seen my work and my skill set and my business awareness to the problems that the technology side was solving. They were like, hey, do you want to chat? You want to have coffee and see what might be next for you in the future? I need to solve this problem. Are you interested? And I ended up taking the job. I started with a contract as a kind of a product marketing manager, doing data sheets and white papers and things yeah. that help. Riveting connect. stuff. Yeah, I mean, things that help the power of the software solution into the hands of the Cisco sales reps that were responsible Mm -hmm. for selling our product through their offering. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up redesigning the website. And I just kind of like, it opened the door for me to do a lot of like marketing design. And about a year, a year and a half or so into that, I was doing all the trade shows and things. And then the company did a major information architecture assessment and didn't have a lot of resources left to take action on it. And I was given the opportunity to say, hey, like, do you want to do you want to do something in this small capacity to help solve a problem that our customer thinks they have? And we designed and built this thing in a week and shipped it off. It was like a basic scheduler. But you got to remember, this is like 18 years ago in web-based enterprise software. And it landed at the biggest contract the, the company had seen in its couple of years in existence and, and kind of prototyping its way into the future. And they said, well somehow you made this work. Do you want to do more of this? And I was like, what is this? And I'll never forget, like one of the lead engineering architects like pulled me aside and he's like, dude, this is information <laughs> architecture and user experience design. Seriously, just change your LinkedIn profile, start calling yourself this. There's books on it and like your career will be fine. That's literally, that's literally what it took. It was just someone kind of pushing me over the edge, identifying what I was doing when I was just approaching it from a I understand the business problem and through design, I could express it in a way that Mm -hmm. an engineer could build and then we shipped it. So I became like a lead information architect and UX designer and just kind of working my way through there for a couple of years and then made the transition to Vancouver where I live now about two years later and just kind of got involved with agency work and did 30 projects or so during my time at Natobi and then just kept kind of going from shop to shop and getting more and more experience and eventually became kind of a co-director in a local boutique uh, interaction design agency and just kind of said yes more than no to the opportunity to really push my design skills and how they relate to business. Mm -hmm. And that has helped me traverse many, many opportunities, just being really sensitive to how design interfaces with business, which is really on theme with the study that led to the maturity model, because that's always been my point of view is the power of design is only relevant to the fact that it solves a problem for a business, which is driving value to a customer. And that's kind of the lens that I've always been fortunate enough to have because of my degree and my just my studies and my exposure to business thinking and blending that with kind of materializing it through design. And so I won't walk you anymore through my LinkedIn profile, but there's a whole <laughs> bunch of experiences no, that I've had into the point of being able to ship product ship learning product to 400 plus million members through LinkedIn learning. 
So it's yeah, just built no, that, upon that. I think that it definitely sounds like you were the right person at the right place at the right time, gaining the right kind of experience at the levels necessary to be able to expand what you're able to understand about yourself. And I love it when you talk about you were doing something without realizing what it was you were actually doing. And someone had to push you over the edge there and say, hey, this is this is what you're doing. Reminds me of that scene in the movie, The Founder. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's uh, it's when the guy who owns McDonald's goes, he has, he has a revenue issue and he talks to a banker and the banker explains to him, you know, you don't realize you're not in the food industry, you're in the real estate industry. And that's when it switched their profitability. But anyways, very, very similar in terms of, of how you explain that. Now, it really strikes me as really interesting is how many, how much experience you've had working amongst different teams at different agencies, which obviously lends itself to your expertise now being able to really champion that cross, uh, cross-functional team development. A big part of what you're talking about here, what you're really familiar with is this idea of democratizing practices and making sure that a team can quickly understand the value of how another team within their, their company operates. Can you maybe share with us in your experience, where have you noticed the, the biggest, I guess, improvements and the, and the biggest wins when a team that's siloed within an agency or within a brand are able to share practices and learn from each other? Because I, I do be, I'll believe a lot, of our, a lot of our listeners are, are currently in those stages. I think if I describe a scenario, but more so like, than, like the pattern of the scenario, more so than the actual details of it, it might be. Absolutely. That's, that sounds a lot better. What I find is... It's, it's kind of Captain Obvious stuff where it's you find teams that have friction around either process, sometimes driven by ego, power control over mm-hmm. decision making, and mm-hmm. helping teams kind of pilot a behaviors change in a safe way to invite more people into more subject matter experts into the earlier stage process of thinking through the problem space that you want to explore. And you can break that down in a variety of ways and ways that you might not think are relevant, but end up playing a huge role in Mm. when teams are formed. So a great opportunity is to actually work on this when a new team is forming or a new project is kicking off versus Mm -hmm. trying to do something mid-flight because that can be Mm -hmm. really disruptive. But there's things called... In a bad way. Yeah, disruptive and bad friction. Have you, if you're familiar with things like RACI and DACI... Yes. I learned a chunk of years ago from a colleague during my time at Thinkific that was a big fan of RACI. And I kind of went deep on it and learned about it and really figured out how to pragmatically leverage it in terms of getting teams organized around who literally is doing what and what their responsibilities are and using that as a framework for creating the conditions of trust. When I say that, I mean, if when you understand who's responsible versus who's accountable and who's consulted, you know that there's one person that is responsible for each phase of a deliverable that needs to feed into the overall success of the next person that is in the, the assembly line. And in a case where you move from like a product manager identifying a brief or a problem statement that needs to be vetted by customer data and information, that mm-hmm. going to design, which is to validate the assumptions and the data that were conveyed in the brief, to then engineering, extending the vision of design in a technical capacity, you need to have design and engineering consulted up front so that the brief isn't framed in a way that is completely Absolutely. unattainable. And Absolutely. There, there in and of itself requires a letting go so that the person responsible for the brief actually welcomes the other subject matter experts in and isn't attached to 
it has to be the way I think it needs to be, but it has to be the way that makes the most sense based on the collection of information that all of my colleagues have to offer. And that is, that's technical implications and architectural like dependencies, overall design practices and approach and different methods that can be leveraged. What does research look like? What is customer success? Um, what are they experiencing? What customer stories can they help you pull from? How are they involved in the process? Where does product marketing fit into this? Mm-hmm. So product marketing knows a ton about where the marketplace is actually fitting in an actuality versus in a more top of funnel um, capacity that a tri- traditional marketing department would have because product marketing is fitting into the driving value to the core use cases for the existing audience, right? So the more, it it sounds heavy, but the more time you spend up front, the less time you spend later on down the line and the more trust that's built throughout the team because everyone understands why you're doing it, for whom you are doing it, the value mm-hmm. that's being proposed. And when you when you build that awareness within the team, that narrative carries itself through without having it being challenged on a regular basis because upstream, that narrative was formed by the team. Yeah. Which means when a, the designer and the engineer and the product marketer and the customer success representatives all understand the narrative, they're now a representative of that clarity in every meeting that they are distributed into for their teams when they say, hey, what's going on with that? They're like, rather than, I don't know, the PM's just kind of off on a goose chase deciding what we should do and not really involving people. It's like, we had a great meeting. We understand this is the customer. These are the problems we're solving. And this is when we expect or what phase we're at. That helps them also prepare documentation. That helps, it helps everyone upstream with the work that all depends on that kind of top of funnel product decision. So if that's the goal, there are mechanics like RACI or DACI. There's things like um, who-do activities where you literally can do stakeholder mapping, which like, who are you and what do you do? Mm-hmm. And it's really simple because then you understand how you should involve that person in future conversations. So you're doing your own organizational mapping and assessment so that you don't miss people and people don't, you know, there's no like factions or grumblings around like why certain people aren't being involved. And I've done a lot of this work in advance of kickoff meetings and kind of groomed people into a 20-person kickoff meeting recently for Envision Learn. I groomed every single person along this way of thinking and even did a bit of the who-do exercise with them in advance of the meeting and told them what the three-hour session was going to look like. Mm -hmm. So everyone came in with an aligned headspace and they were just ready to work. So I didn't waste time in that meeting trying to get alignment. Everyone knew my purpose and they had a chance to ask me questions in advance. And I got a lot of great feedback that that was like the cleanest, most productive and efficient three-hour session that seemed like it was a snap, like it just flew by. Yeah. You're welcome, guys. Well, you got to put in the work. That's the thing is that these sessions don't magically end up successful. You have to evaluate who the team is and quite frankly, care about the result you're trying to achieve and craft it around them. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You know what, you know, and don't hate me for this. What's coming to my mind is your operation, business operations therapist. Probably. And you're, you're, you're helping all of these, these couples or teams speak cleanly, align on what they're trying to get out of it, and exit that conversation in a productive and, and it sounds very purposeful manner. So I'm going to use that going yeah. forward. You're, you're a business therapist. <laughs> it's come up so many times with our customers and conversations that we've had around their design maturity results. They just feel like they've literally said, this feels like therapy. Thank you. Because they don't yeah. have anyone to talk to about this stuff. Yeah. And in a safe way that allows them to really reflect and think about taking action. And our goal in the design transformation capacity, our flywheel is centered around the observation and the hypothesis. It's very simple that people don't know how to work together. And what can we do to actually help grease the wheels on that and provide yeah. people with frameworks, approaches, and approaches to psychological safety that build trust and just having more fun working together once those things happen. People stay in their jobs longer. They progress. They earn, like, they, their skills advance. They become more competent. They become more proud of the work they do. The, everything, like, everything flowers out from that. I nerd out on that stuff. That's kind of... I'm. I get excited about those challenges because they're they're different with every group. Absolutely. Now, speaking of different groups, when you're talking through your experience and your approach and the scenario you just gave me, I can't help but to think about the smaller companies and the ones that are just starting out. So, you know, entrepreneurs that are starting their own, whether it's an agency, whether it's a brand, those guys are wearing at times, you know, the 10 different hats each. How does, you know, if you were to give advice to those entrepreneurs or those people who are starting five-person shops, 10-person shops, how do they start applying some of this mindset of cross-functional teams and sharing information sharing 
uh, at that early stage where everyone's sort of kind of baked in to the same, they're, they're aware of everything that's happening in the company because the company is so small. Is there a way to start prioritizing some of the way that you would help teams communicate with each other when the stakeholders already know everything? You know, what are some advice you could give kind of an entrepreneur starting their, their own companies or smaller agencies doing that? And how do they start involving practices that allow for that cross-team collaboration? I think there's a couple ways to think about it. And ultimately, leading kind of with discovery and us the, challenging the assumption that you just that you just stated that everyone knows everything. Mm. Starting from there and saying, what don't we know? And yeah. why don't we know it? And why does it matter? Why does what we know matter? And what end does it serve? And mm. understanding where the gaps are and then figuring out ultimately how to drive towards focus. Because prioritization is just a matter of focus and being able to say, no to more things than yes. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, on I probably wear eight to 10 different hats between the two different products that I support. It's knowing when the time is right to engage in that activity to lead you to an answer in the sequence of questions that you have. So we leverage this kind of mantra or mentality um, of being discovery led and uh, evidence based. So we lead with discovery, we answer questions with evidence. We don't answer questions with assumptions. So how do you leverage a very pragmatic approach to say like, okay, well, where should we start? We're like, great, what do we have? What do we already know? What don't we know? Is that important to get to today? Or is that more important six months from now? Is that critical to the, the one-year plan or the five-year plan and help you rein in what you should focus on today, but still knowing how those connect in a more linear fashion to mm-hmm. questions that need to be answered later and knowing, do I need to act upon this thing today by building? Or do I need to act upon something three months down the road by conducting research and figuring out how to multi-thread those activities so that when we get to three months down the road, we know what to build. We know what approach to take and we know why, because we ran an experiment. We had a hypothesis. So being really, I mean, this stuff is, is very pragmatic. Mm-hmm. All of what we do, like very, very little of it is the success is not rooted in guesswork or serendipity. It's being pragmatic as much as you possibly can by running little experiments that test hypotheses that give you results that know which question to ask next. Or mm-hmm. if there you got an answer that tells you, yes, build or yes, develop, whatever it is that you're expressing. And I think building those muscles in an organization, supporting it and trusting it are really what what actually the the research showed helps teams essentially exponentially increase in business value that they Mm -hmm. drive to the marketplace is a culture of experimentation. And there's two reasons why. One, the main reason is it promotes clarity. Executives no longer have to say amongst themselves, well, we trust design, but we're not really sure how to trust them or how do we measure design? How do we know that they're doing the right things even though we know design matters, but how do we empirically understand that design is making a difference mm-hmm. and that we should invest in it and scale in it as a set of practices, right? Mm-hmm. Not just with the design team, but also with marketing organization or with another operational department. Mm-hmm. When you leverage experimentation, you make that practical. And you can say, leadership, we are running these experiments. These are the results that we're finding. And this is leading us to the answer of what we build how we move forward to add value to both the company and to customers. When teams become more efficient and effective by leveraging those practices, they believe more in each other 
And then executives believe more in the teams and grant more freedom because no longer do they have to wonder because now there's there's a flow of evidence coming towards leadership that's like, this is how we're running the company amidst your mm-hmm. leadership, right? Yeah. So it it's really where where the research showed that companies make these leaps as an organization driving value and building trust, really. Yeah. What really resonates with me when you're talking about this is, you know, we are pragmatic. What I do is very pragmatic and it's not rooted in serendipitous moments. And that's also the reason why I wanted to ask that from a smaller business mindset and entrepreneurial, a lot of that feeling of opportunity after opportunity, all the serendipitous wins and it goes hand in hand with a lot of entrepreneurs starting their own business because that excitement and, and that it's almost addicting the amount of decisions you have to make on a regular basis when you're starting your own company. Now, that begs a different question for me is for our listeners and for our audience members that are in this spot, that are trying to be more pragmatic with their decision making across their teams, across the, the direction of their, their product or service, direction of their brand, how much time and I know it's going to be tough to give a direct answer on this, but how much time and resources should a team or should individuals be putting towards looking at their business, asking these questions, developing these little experiments that allow them to see uh, on paper, here is what's more effective. Here are the questions we need to ask. Here's the questions we don't need to ask. How much time should be spent given a month of billable work? How much, how much time should be spent towards fostering this type of approach? So you're talking about it from looking at the time spent in a customer engagement versus the time spent looking internally at how the business exactly. operates as an agency. Like how do you communicate the value of this to customers Yes, in, in how much you should factor it into your scope of work? Even ultimately, even, right? Does it even have to be customers? It can, it can be internally and making that argument internally to maybe some other stakeholders in your company that don't see the value in it, or it's harder for them to cross the line to want to spend, you know, 20% of their month developing new analyzing new business practices. As you said, it's kind of an it depends scenario. I think I think when you're starting off in these practices, it's really beneficial to think about the smallest movable object that you can pilot a new behavior with. It's not to boil the ocean, but it's to figure out how you change the way that the culture considers asking questions. Mm. And one one very simple way that opens the playing field is leading with questions versus answers. So you can go into a meeting, one meeting and say, this is what I've observed. This is why I believe we are here. What am I missing? What details, how does this resonate with you from your point of view on the team in the marketplace and, and start to open up that dialogue that brings in more information that will help kind of harden or or bolster or make the argument stronger through a questioning culture. And I don't mean I don't mean it in a way of like competitive questioning. I mean it in a way of this is what I've arrived at. It's my responsibility to to make this decision, but I want to make sure that I've extracted as much knowledge from the team as possible in order to do that. That's a very short investment to actually then figure out did that work? Did I get more information that was valuable in helping me make that a more confident decision? If yes, great. How can we do more of this? If no, why? So that's a little, that's a mini experiment that could be run in 30 minutes. You're like, I'm going to invite everyone to test my hypothesis and give me feedback on it. And what I learned from that meeting will help me determine whether or not I should proceed with that approach again. 
show the value of it and of that 30 minutes spent or reflect upon how I could have made it more effective or it actually was a failed, it just, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important thing that culturally speaking, many practitioners will understand, but many new to the practice of experimentation and hypothesis driven work will will not have accepted yet, which is that a failed hypothesis is a successful hypothesis. Arriving at no is okay. You can yeah. actually, it doesn't have to be yes. It just, the worst thing that can happen is you don't land yeah. at a yes or a no. That's the worst possible outcome when you do hypothesis-driven decision-making. So yeah. um, that takes some time to refine that practice. But but again, like whenever we talk about these things, I try and caveat that like, it sounds big, but it can be small. Like, yeah. And then it can grow because you're building the conversation and you're building the durability of the approach or the practice. Yeah. And keeping it simple is really important and not making it like subject matter specific of, you know, if this is an engineering architecture decision, probably aren't going to lean heavily on what like a product manager or, or like customer success person thinks about architecture because they're just not well equipped to have a, a deep vetted point of view on like how to fix that car, <laughs> right? Yeah. Good at driving it, but not necessarily building them. Is that helpful? That, no, that's exactly the kind of response I was hoping you'd give. That's very helpful because I think a lot of our listeners will be in that position where they're going to have to be the ones driving that conversation for their organizations or for their business. And it may be something where that type of cross-team approach is something that has been shunned or something that has been taboo within their company for whatever reason. I, I, I do have a question, though, about kind of from an observational standpoint, you know, someone who's done what you've done, who's been in the position you've been in, and ultimately looks at the opportunities within organizations and structures and processes like you've described to me on this podcast. Looking at COVID and looking at how teams, you know, have had to shift from, you know, those teams that were in office together on a daily basis, design teams, development teams, marketing teams to work from home. What do you predict is going to happen when it comes to returning to office and the teams having to be closer than they ever been? What do you predict as as some of the biggest opportunities in, in and cross teams, development, collaboration, as companies start to go back to the office. You know, this, this, it's been an anomaly of a, of a year and a half or so, uh, hopefully ending soon. Um, for some people. For some people, exactly. What do you think are going to be some of the, the, the biggest opportunities for, uh, for businesses and brands to be able to pivot uh, the way that they look at um, cross-functional teams? I think the, the brick-and-mortar reality has proven to not be critical to success. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is coming from someone who's like, I've been working in an almost dedicated remote fashion for about a decade. Mm, Lucky man. Um, So, and and I'm with a company that is, was from the beginning, hundred percent remote. So I challenge the notion that being in the same physical space is necessary. I think it has its benefits, but there's also some extreme benefits to being remote and having a more honest and I'd say democratized view on participation for teams. I think sometimes in physical spaces, meetings are more difficult to facilitate because they'll be overrun by a certain voice in the room. Whereas in these remote settings on Zoom calls or whatever video 
base technology is being leveraged, there's a different decorum and and amount of patience and facilitation that takes place around how everyone is welcomed into the conversation in a different way when the energy in the physical room is not manifested. I think it's a tough one. It's a good question because it's also very personal, right? And it's very biased to my own experience of what I've seen. Um, I think the most powerful reason to get together in a physical space is if you have a strong reason to where that physical space is necessary for collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I've worked remote for a long, long time and kind of with my time at Linda and LinkedIn, I went to the office, like down in the Bay area once a month. We went down, we gathered for reasons of design sprints, large strategic decision-making, big reviews of like the content roadmap, large presentations that required, even some of them probably didn't, but running a design sprint is, you can do it remotely. You can do it physically in person too. They have pros and cons. Like it's completely possible to do all of our work remote. But what you lo- what you lack is the, the things that happen outside of those engagements, like the dinners, the, the team bonding experiences. So being, being mindful of the fact that you need to create and craft opportunities for teams to come together beyond just the work that you share mm-hmm. is really critical. And that's, that's important in a remote setting and in, in a business like brick Absolutely. and mortar environment. If you run a brick and mortar office that just everyone goes home at whatever period of time you stop working and no one socializes or has a motivation to, then that culture is going to suffer its own end um, or its its own patterning um, in a different way than a fully remote environment would. So I think there's just, you have to think about it as an opportunity to structure the way people come together to get to an outcome, like which would be culture. Right, which would be a healthy culture of teams that are happy to work together and feel like they're productive. Mm-hmm. I kind of don't care what if people are in person or remote. If you can structure mm-hmm. a way that gets people to be stoked upon working together and they're highly mm-hmm. productive, um, and so I think that what happens, and I, I we talked about this when the pandemic hit, is that the move to fully distributed workforces in a remote environment really challenged management infrastructure and management styles. And is this the death of the micromanager? It challenges the way that people look at leadership and look at management and understand how to separate those two. And I'm really excited about the future that's represented there because I think it's an opportunity for managers to learn and grow. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity for individual contributors to gain responsibility knowing that their physical space is is really theirs to navigate and manage. And like, hopefully it grows a more competent workforce. I think that's going to be unavoidable. I think that has to be the outcome. Um, the expectation on the employer side and the employee side is that there's going to be learnings from all of this work from home stuff, uh, all the processes and outcomes. So I definitely appreciate your insight and, and your predictions there. Um, Chris, we're going to move into our rapid fire question sure. round there for you. So what I'm looking for are gut answers. They can be one sentence or a couple, but, uh, yeah, the, the first, the first thing that comes to mind is often the best answer here. So, uh, without any further ado, what was your first job? It was a dishwasher at a pizza, pizza shop in my hometown in Southern California. Don't they have paper plates? <laughs> what were you, what were you watching? 
It was all, yeah, no, it was all like plastic all plates the pans. And, and the pans and like just, you know, that <laughs> first great. job in high school when you're like 14 or whatever and you're Absolutely. Uh, what was your worst job? Oh, polishing retainers. Oh my God. I got a job, yeah, through whatever, someone that was like, here's a summer job. And I sat in a dark room polishing oh retainers with like pumice on them for one, literally like one day. And I never went back. Oh, I was oh like, I can't God, do this again. Like, no way. This is the worst job ever. And yeah. I've dug ditches and I've done demo. Like I've done a lot of terrible things. Not terrible, just a lot of hard labor or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And this was just, just terrible. This I did not was, even think that that was something people did. I, you know, when you're, when you're a teenager looking for work and somebody knows, your parents know somebody and somebody knows somebody that's looking for help tomorrow. And you're like, you need to go earn money somehow. I did, and that was that. What's your What's your favorite song or album that you're listening to right now? Ooh, I just had some uh, some recent revelations. Um, I've been listening to a band called Ghostlight quite a bit, which is kind of the music I play in the band I'm in is of the Grateful Dead lineage, and so there's a lot of different genres that swirl around that. And Ghostlight has brought together a lot of the feel of that music, but with a lot of originals. And a healthy blend of male and female bandmates, which really like it, it makes for a really a different dynamic band vibe with that blend of energy than like an all dude band. You can tell the difference in like the articulation of some of the segments and the way the music goes. Cool. And it's been Definitely really great to out. hear. Yeah, lots of really great harmonies too. But it's a it's like a, a jam band. What's your uh what's your must have app on your phone? I think it goes goes kind of between it's and again like pragmatic guy right like opera business operations guy it's it's been between evernote and google maps nice evernote oh wow i haven't used that for a while i just i Um, I write all my songs through moments that like arrive and i capture them immediately in evernote and then go back i probably have 60 songs or so that are one-liners and things that i then do or don't revisit weeks or months down the road and actually build a whole concept around. Super cool. I do the same thing with, uh, with marketing strategies in my head. I'll, I'll write down something and revisit it later. I'll be like, Oh, that, that was great. Or that was trash. <laughs> the trick is you have to develop the muscle to write it down. Like I'm extending my yes. answer, but what I can say is the lesson there is we all have had these lightning in a bottle moments and been like, yeah, it's so clear. There's no way I can forget that. And then you go back to what you're doing and literally like two minutes later, you're like, what was that? It's gone. It's just gone. Yeah. And so I've yeah. tried to develop a practice of capturing those things, whether or not I do anything with them. I've realized that it's an important practice. What was the last thing you Googled? I need to see which computer I'm on. <laughs> not the burner computer. <laughs> I think I was looking at microphones, like new, like recording microphones. Time to upgrade. I just like nerding out on things as as shouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> Second last question here. If you weren't doing this job, what would you be doing? I'd love to be an instrument builder. That's something I have. Any specific instrument? Well, mandolins. I kind of have four of them back there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, awesome. I, I enjoy through doing renovations and stuff and doing more fine woodwork and learning how to do moldings and things like that. I was like, this is really, I really enjoy the big surprise being a digital like pixel pusher 
that I enjoy the nuances <laughs> of the very small form factor of joining wood together and making it fit seamlessly. And I've always just had a, a passion for to music and thinking about, well, does, does my retirement life look like making instruments? Because that would keep me skilled in, in a couple of passions and still building and making and designing and things like that. So. Well, I hope we have this conversation in 20 years and you're, you're selling mandolins yeah. out, the side of, out the side of your truck as you tour across the country. You Even know? if it just keeps me sane, I think that's the trick, right? Definitely. I wanted to thank you for your time today. I, I think that your insight and the way that you look at teams, I'm usually interviewing people about marketing practices and marketing strategies. I think for me, this has been probably one of the most enlightening conversations I've had because of that is what I do day in, day out now, structures, like a teams. Um, so I really do appreciate it. And I know our audience that that has similar roles within their businesses and organizations will we'll find a lot of value out of, out of the responses and thoughts you've shared with us today. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Thank you for the time. Yeah, it was great to Really chat. enjoyed having you on the show. Yeah. Would you like to leave us with any future thoughts or a- any projects or, or anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> How can our audience get in touch with you? Stuff like that. No, I think I'm good. It's just been a, it's been a great, great to chat. I think I emptied the tank on all the things that you wanted to hear about. If you, um, if you want to revisit some other stuff, I'm happy to chat. Um, and you know, anyone that wants to reach out and go deeper on some of these things, it's, it's always fun to follow up and chat about these challenges that people face. And I'm pretty open for it. If, if people find me on LinkedIn and want to chat. So that's amazing. Happy to. Well, Chris, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thanks, Daryl. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.